Well, we're going to start a new series today on the attributes of God. We're going to call this series Our Glorious God, and it will be 16 weeks or so study of God's attributes. It'll take us to around Easter or just after Easter. It'll be taught by myself, Aaron, Adam, and other men, Ben, uh, some of our other elders and pastoral residents that will be teaching lessons as we work our way through this series. And this week and next week, we're going to really just be laying groundwork and introducing our series before we jump in and start working through uh, a list or lists, depending on the week, of attributes. So we're excited for this study. Trust it'll be profitable for us as a church as we spend time considering our glorious God. Many of you have no doubt heard the one of the common phrase, the axiom that your view of God is the most important thing about you. Another way to say that is that your theology matters. And we hear the word theology and sometimes various conceptions come to mind. You may think of nerds in textbooks. You wouldn't be completely wrong, right? Some think theology and things like vain speculation. It's merely for the curious or those who have a higher intellectual bent in their personality. Some think that theology is counterproductive, that it's unnecessary for our day in and day out lives as Christians, or maybe a little bit better than that, but still not good, something that good theology, it's an extra, right? Theology is fine, but ultimately it's separate from what really matters about your life as a believer, that somehow what we think about God intellectually, what we know of him from careful study of him and his character and his word is a separate matter from what we really ought to be doing for him. And contrary to those notions, scripture does not drive a wedge, of course, between theology and devotional, vibrant faith. It connects them intimately. We're called, Jeremiah 9, 24, to understand and to know the Lord. Hebrews 11, as an example, we've been reading through Hebrews in our Sunday morning. If you want to look briefly at Hebrews 11, in defining faith, the writer of the Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Listen to verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That's a theological statement. Creation, we by faith believe that God created the world. That's critical to our life, lives as believers, even necessary. He says, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And down in verse 6, after connecting our faith with understanding that God is the creator, as one example and manifestation of that, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Take that over further down in the sermon where the writer references what happened at Sinai with statements about the character of our God and then our necessary response to those realities. He says in verse 18, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet referencing Sinai. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." This expression, yes, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Of course, there's much there to unpack, but the point for this morning is to say all of that, all of the exhortation that comes from this is based on how We're to understand God. Our God is a consuming fire, the God who will return and shake the earth. As it says there, clearly then our view of God is essential. That's common sense for us at Mission Road Bible Church, but it's important for us to remember that our view of God, our understanding of who he is, drives then our devotion to him. So at the most intimate level of your heart, your ability to rightly relate to, respond to, pursue relationship with, walk in relationship with God depends on your view of him. All of the promises of God's word, all of the instruction of God's word are significant because of who he is and who that word comes from. In other words, knowing what God is like is essential to believing and doing what he desires, what he commands. So, A study of theology, in particular our case, theology proper, is of course a worthwhile, maybe you could say the most worthwhile pursuit. We all have a theology proper whether we admit it or not. The question is whether or not it's informed by Scripture, whether or not it's accurate, whether or not it is true. And so we're going to commit ourselves in Sunday school to study God as he has revealed himself in his word. So the what, what is our study? Well, it's going to be study of God's attributes. Well, what does that mean? Well, Adam is going to talk more about this next week because it's worth considering how we best study the attributes, what exactly we're saying when we talk about God's attributes. There are some important things to note there, but for now, just we want to note there are particular aspects of what God is like. Attributes describe his character as he has revealed revealed it. They describe his whole being. They're the qualities that are God's nature, who God is. Attributes are simply a description of who God is. They're qualities of the entire Godhead. When we talk about the attributes of God, these are things that are fully Christ, fully the Holy Spirit, fully God the Father. They're inseparable from who he is. When we study these things, you, we can't set attributes aside like there are things that we add to who God is. No, they're his essential being. They're just reflections of his essential being in as best we can understand from Scripture and describe. Now, why are we going to study this? Well, we've just said it in the introduction. For increased understanding of him, for greater love for him, that's grounded in awe and reverence and wonder, and that all of that would result in a greater and a closer relationship with him. Certainly, we're interested in facts about God. That, that's what we're going to be doing, what he's revealed. Again, what he has said about himself, that is the, the pursuit here. But true theology is much more 
than knowledge and facts. In his book, Taste and See That the Lord is Good, Pastor Joel James, who's been here with us, our, our friend Steve Collin, who was here as pastors with uh, Joel in South Africa, he says this, no matter how diligent your accumulation, no matter how brilliantly you categorize, alphabetize, and analyze the facts you've discovered about God, you haven't really done theology if that's all you do. Why not? Because theology requires daily application. Theology produces love for God. Theology must always ascend from the arid desert of merely accumulating and analyzing facts about God to the lush mountain valleys of application, worship, and love for God. That's why we're going to do this study. Not simply to accumulate facts, not simply to be intellectually puffed up, but for worship, for worship. So what's going to be our approach to this? Really, this morning, we want to say much about our approach to this study. And then again, next week, Pastor Adam will give some further introduction. How do we think about attributes? How do we think about these attributes in relation to the Trinity and the Godhead? And then we'll jump in after that with the attributes that we're going to study. But there's some important presuppositions for our study. Sometimes we hear things like, we're going to study the doctrine of, of God and then there can be two opposite and extreme responses. One is we want it to be as confounding and confusing as possible because then it feels like it's really intellectual. We won't understand anything, but we'll be like, we're studying the deep things of God. Okay. Then on the other end of that extreme is sort of just to dismiss it because of that extreme. So the other end is like, oh, well, this is just going to be some out there, ethereal sort of thing. This isn't profitable at all. Why are we going to waste time? Just tell me how to live. Why do we need to spend time doing these sort of things? And those, of course, are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Sometimes on the one end of the spectrum, although it's not always negative in that way, is that you start with and you're going to argue from the ground up for the existence of God. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that at all. We're starting with the presupposition of God's existence. Why? Because that's the starting point of Scripture. We start with Scripture. Make no apology for that. We're starting with the presupposition that God's word is God's word, and that Genesis 1-1 in the beginning was God, right? He was there already. The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. It assumes it. It presumes it, and that's exactly what we're going to do, right? The scriptures tell us that the, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14, right? Psalm 53, Romans 3. So we're not going to argue for his existence as assumed in Scripture. Another important presupposition is his revelation, both general, what we might call general revelation, and special revelation. How do we think about these things and how they impact the way that we study God's attributes? Well, general revelation is, uh, maybe simply put, nature and conscience. What, what can be, has been revealed of God in nature, in his creation. We see that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare, right, the glory of God, right? It portrays creation as speaking. That's general revelation in creation, right? We learn in Romans that the existence of God that ha has been imprinted on man's conscience. It's rejected, it's ignored, it's seared, but it's there. That's general revelation, we learn from the scriptures that general revelation is adequate for our accountability. All 
men and women are accountable to God based on general revelation. But it's insufficient for salvation. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness in our fallen state, according to Romans 1. We stuff away what is known of God and should be acknowledged because of our sin. So general revelation is not enough to save. It's adequate for our accountability. It's what Romans 1 teaches, and you can read that on your own this week. But general revelation does, we do see demonstrations, of course, of God's wisdom and goodness and power in creation. I trust as believers, when you go places and you see beautiful things, that you ascribe glory to God in the Psalm 19 sense. That reveals something of God. So there is general revelation. But special revelation is God's specific disclosure of himself to us, mainly and primarily for us today through Scripture, through the living and written Word of God, so that we come to know him, so that we can be saved, so that we could glorify him by knowing and living in accordance with his revealed will. Hebrews 1 says that God spoke it various times in various ways, referring to special revelation. And in these last days, he has spoken in his son. There are various aspects of special revelation, Christ in the incarnation, various miracles and acts. But what we're talking about in shorthand when we say special revelation is scripture. General revelation, nature, conscience, special revelation, God's revealed word, his infallible, inerrant word. It's important to remember that even Adam needed God's spoken word before the fall. God addressed Adam. He told him his purpose. He told him his will. He revealed it to him. He told him how to walk, how to live. Now, after the fall, we suppress the truth of general revelation in unrighteousness. We stuff it away, even though what can be seen of God's power is there. And we require God's enablement then to rightly appraise and apply Scripture by faith. We read Hebrews earlier. It says, by faith, we see the world around us and believe. So we can see demonstrations of God's power, of his wisdom, of his goodness. But that alone will not allow us to adequately study his attributes. We need scripture. We even need scripture to understand what we see in the world around us because of sin and because of our finiteness. So you can see something of God through a telescope when you look at creation you can see something of God through a microscope when you look at creation. You can't rightly understand those things apart from Scripture, meaning what they tell us and teach us about God and who he is. And for the most important things about God, we need our Bibles. So we will study, No, you're all surprised by this, Scripture to understand who God is, Right? That's primary. We need the reliable and true word of God to rightly understand God. So what are our commitments to how we're going to do this study? This is important, important commitments for our study. Well, when we study the attributes of God, as with any type of systematic theology, which is simply the teachings of Scripture organized and, and synthesized, systematic theology, when we study that, we want this theology that we teach to be exegetically derived. That means pulled out of the scriptures, from the teaching of scripture, and then systematically expressed, okay? Exegetically derived before it's organized and labels are applied to it. And then with those labels over time, because those exist, we're not coming to this brand new. We're not going to start reading Genesis 1-1 together, try to make our way through the whole Bible 
And then when we see an attribute of God expressed or, or reflected upon, stop and say, you know, did you see that? We're, we're, of course, starting with attributes that have been formulated over time. But even that, what we're doing when we teach and bring these things to you, we're doing that because we believe that those categories ultimately were exegetically derived before those things were grouped. And then those groupings, then we'll go back to the scriptures and see what scripture says about those things. So essentially, that means that as we study theology proper, we're not doing anything more than examining the scriptures and making reasonable inferences about God's character based on what he has said about himself. And we're going to avoid speculative conclusions or philosophically deduced conclusions about God that are not clearly inferred from scripture. We want clear assertions about who God says he is, not philosophical abstractions. That's not, the, that's not how God has revealed himself in his word. And we're not going to spend time there. So we want to look at attributes that are derived from Scripture, not philosophy, rationalistic thought, mysticism, or other influences that seek to mold Scripture to their image and how we express those things. Let me give an example of, on the spectrum of how we do Because we, we want to admit that, of course, everything that we say about God's attributes aren't from a particular book and a particular verse, right? There is organization and systematization that, that goes on when we say things like, you know, God is jealous, right? We have Bible verses that say that, and then there may be manifestations of that that demonstrate that, and we look at both of those things and say jealousy is one of God's attributes. You think Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses, and he makes very clear declarations about his character. Right? That would be very basic, straightforward. God says this in his word about himself, and we say, therefore, this, is, this is, says something about God's character. Right? Maybe moving a, a, a step beyond that more toward more inference would be the Trinity. The Trinity, right? Implied in Scripture, demonstrated in Scripture, but a careful formulation like we find in later reflection on Scripture is not found in our Bible. There is no concise, catechal statement about the Trinity in our Bible. But we do see statements of God's oneness and unity and statements of the Godhead. We see statements about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. We even see verses where all three are named. And the work of all three are discussed. But we don't have this detailed technical formulation of the Trinity given to us in, you know, 2 Thessalonians or something, right? So that's theology has been done to organize the teaching of Scripture to come up with a doctrinal formulation that's true insofar as it reflects Scripture. But that's different than in Exodus 34 where God says, I'm gracious and compassionate and I show mercy. Right? But it's not less true, it's just inferred and it's been synthesized. Then sometimes folks go even further beyond that. And that's where we say, well, if X is true about God and Y is true about God, then we must formulate this other idea to explain those two things. And that's where it gets more murky. And that's where we're on more shaky ground, depending on who's asking the questions and who's trying to answer those things. And sometimes there are aspects of doctrine that are said to be primary, even central, the most important things about our understanding of God that 
you and I wouldn't clearly find as we study the scriptures. Those things can even become an interpretive control that then influence how we read scripture because we're looking to find those types of formulations. And we're not going to be on that end of this spectrum, right? We want to be grounded in clearly the, the assertions that God makes about himself, clearly the reasonable inferences that we make from what God says about himself and what his word demonstrates like the Trinity, and there will be others like that. But we're going to avoid some of the more speculative where we're answering questions that, frankly, we, we don't believe God thinks we need answers to, or he would have given that to us in his word. So in terms of our commitments, the most important realities about God are the ways that he speaks of himself in the Bible. Again, I know this is common sense for you, all of that and you're saying, but it's important that we remind ourselves of these commitments. Now, there are two ditches that are helpful to think about, and we want to avoid both. All right, two ditches. On one side, there's this ditch, the, the no creed but the Bible ditch, okay? We're going to come back and explain this. And on the other side is the ditch where we give undue authority or governance to pass theological formulation, okay? Those two ditches we want to avoid in how we study Scripture and do theology. So let's talk about the no creed but the Bible ditch. And this one's hard for us because initially it sounds, sounds faithful, Right? No creed but the Bible in its worst forms is a, simply a way of saying, we don't need theology. I don't need any, any help. I don't need teaching. I don't need the teaching from decades and centuries prior, and I don't need anything from the faithful formulations of men before. I just need my Bible. Me and my Bible in the closet is as good as anybody ever because I have the Spirit of God and I have my Bible. No creed but the Bible. But that ignores the fact that we have received from the apostles a body of truth, an apostolic tradition, as Jude calls it, the faith once delivered, once handed down for the saints, that ignores the critical role of teachers in teaching in the life of the church. We're commanded to sit under teaching in the church, and the church is commanded to have teachers that lead and guide and shepherd with the word of God in accordance with the apostolic teaching. It ignores the lessons of historical theology and tradition, the errors that have been made before that we want to learn from, and other avenues of teaching that shipwrecked critical elements of the faith. And ultimately, to, to commit all the way to a no creed but the Bible perspective is intellectually dishonest. I mean, for example, if any of us are holding a Bible that's in our personal language and you're not studying in the original languages, and that's it, then you're dependent on somebody at some level, right? I'm thankful for translators of the Bible, right? So I stand, even at that level, on someone else's work. Do you see? So we can't ultimately say with total honesty that, oh, it's just me and God's word. No, no teaching, no guidance, no theology, no help. So we want to be careful there. Look, we sing summaries of biblical truth and theology every Sunday without even questioning it, right? We're led by Pastor Aaron and others in singing reflections of truth, organized statements that reflect God's word. It's theology. We're singing theology. We're singing something that's been put together for us to help us to think about God, to understand God better, to praise him in accordance with scripture. So theology and the theology that has preceded us and helps us is a good thing. Those are helpful things. So the no creed but the Bible ditch, we're not there. It's dishonest, right? We're all helped by those who have come before. We need teaching. We need help and guidance in understanding the scriptures because that's the way God has ordered his church. 
But then on the other side, there's the ditch we may call read with the great tradition ditch in today's terminology. And that is where classical theology becomes a lens through which scripture is read rather than an important reference against which our interpretations are checked. Do you hear the difference? The great tradition becomes a lens through which scripture must be read rather and interpreted rather than a check against how uh, our interpretations may be measured. In other words, it becomes the driver rather than guardrails for our studying of Scripture, right? And that's a problem. The aim of that approach is to understand Scripture, not simply the subject of study based on exegesis, but the aim is to maybe unpack and explain and restate what earlier theologians said. And then it can become the, the subtle error where it's, it's more important to understand what they said and understanding them rightly than it is to understand our exegesis. In the best sense of that work, it is historical theology, where we need to understand what those who have gone before us that have been faithful have said about important things, like who God is. And for that, we should all be thankful. Historical theology is important. It's helpful. We should want to benefit from that. But understanding what those said before and what their formulations were is never the end goal. It shouldn't be the end goal. And measuring ourselves only against that without rightly understanding or making sure that we've rightly unpacked Scripture is not our goal. So what are the implications for our study? Well, positively, we just want to unpack what Scripture says and understand what it says about God. All right? Bible first. What does this say? What does the Scripture say? What do the Scriptures say about God? Now, but we're going to use categories of systematic theology, so we're automatically dependent on some formulation from before, and I just want to make sure I'm acknowledging that. We're not going to start at Genesis 1, as I've said, and read slowly together and start making conclusions, right? We're coming to this study having tested categories from before, understanding that, that none of you are going to be surprised when we study God's goodness and wisdom, right, as a category and an attribute, or God's eternality or something like that, which we will study. Negatively, we want to avoid speculation, we're not trying to go beyond revelation, even when God's revelation leaves us with questions. And also, we're not primarily concerned to retrieve the complex formulations of ages past. That's not our primary goal. We may be helped by those formulations, but we're not going to be satisfied by measuring ourselves against Augustine, Anselm, or Aquinas. That's not our starting point. It's not our ending point. We're starting with Scripture, right? And we're going to come back to Scripture and test what we're demonstrating about the Lord. So where necessary, of course, there's terminology that helps us understand what Scripture says, and we make theological judgments and assertions, and we measure things as we teach and learn what the Scriptures say about someone as incomprehensible as we'll see as, as Almighty God. But Scripture alone is our final authority. Other organizations other systematizations, other doctrinal formulations are insufficient ultimately as an authority for us. They're helpful, but they're insufficient. They're not sufficient to help us reach our final conclusions. We must do that from Scripture. So, again, all that to say, our study of the attributes of God will be a study of Scripture. So, important frameworks then for how we come to the doctrine of God. Framework is what? A basic structure that underlies something or gives it strength, undergirds it, shapes it. So, two things. We want to look and, and know as we prepare to study God's attributes, 
always keeping these things in mind, letting our study, our reflection of the attributes of God rest on these frameworks. One, that God is incomprehensible yet knowable. And two, that God is transcendent yet imminent. He's far away yet near. He's beyond knowledge yet knowable. And we want those things as we study the scriptures to always be in our mind. So briefly, thinking about God's incomprehensibility. This does not mean that he can't be known, clearly. What it means is that he can't be known completely or exhaustively, right? In that sense, he's incomprehensible. Psalm 145.3, God's greatness is unsearchable. His understanding is inscrutable. Isaiah 40.28 in Psalm 147.5. Deuteronomy 29 says, right, the secret things belong to the Lord. There's aspects of him that we've not been privileged to know. And beyond that, even the things that we do know, we don't know exhaustively. We don't know God's infinite grace exhaustively. It's finite creatures, right? So God is incomprehensible. That's important for us. I've given you Bible verses. You can look those up on your own. But when we say God is incomprehensible, it should remind us of our limitation, of our finiteness, of our creatureliness when we study the Creator. When we study the attributes of God, we don't take God off the shelf and kind of turn Him over in our hand and examine all the different facets like you would something that you can handle, then put Him back on the shelf. Right? He's incomprehensible. You have a bad illustration, right? When you look at a picture of a mountain, okay, you may see the whole mountain without actually comprehending the whole mountain. Now, why is that a bad illustration? Because we could never see all of God in a picture, okay? That's why it's a bad illustration, right? But we don't study God like this finite object that we can sort of get our arms around, right? He's incomprehensible. He's beyond our exhaustive knowledge. And yet, he's knowable. He's knowable. In fact, we've been created to know him. We have been created to know the incomprehensible, in some senses, unknowable God. Let's briefly look at Jeremiah chapter 9. If you spend any time reading the Old Testament, you'll often hear that negative statements about Israel are made based on their refusal to know their God, that they should have, but they didn't. Jeremiah 9, verse 24, right? often a memory verse, let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. But if you look up above that, when he's lamenting the condition of his people, he laments that they didn't know him. Verse 6 of chapter 9, their dwelling was in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refused to know God. They refused to know me, declares the Lord. Even before that, in chapter 8, verse 7, a rebuke 
Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the, observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. Right? We've been created for knowledge of the Lord, and the Lord saves and calls a people to himself for knowledge. John 17, 3, right? That this is eternal life, that they may know the Son whom God sent and him. And, and, and him, that we may know God. Similarly, 1 John 5.20, we've been created and saved to know God. So he's knowable. He is incomprehensible, yet knowable. He's also transcendent, yet imminent. It's related to the incomprehensible and knowable, but it is distinct. So what's transcendent? Well, he's utterly distinct. He's independent. He's far above and beyond us. Yet what's imminence? Well, he's near. He's involved in his creation. He's in relationship with his creatures. He's near to his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Listen to verses 14 and 15 and see the notes of both transcendence and then imminence, farness and then nearness. Verse 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So the God of highest heaven, the one to whom all creation belongs, he uniquely set his love in this context on his people Israel and chose to love them and their descendants. Transcendent, yet near. Transcendence speaks of God being above. It speaks of it being exalted. It's not just you know, spatial or geographical. It's not just that he's you know, far away from us, in the heavens when we say transcendence, it's also just qualitatively, in essence, different. He's utterly other from his creation in that sense, in his perfections. When you think of Isaiah 6 and the holy, holy, holy cry of the angels and his train filling the temple and smoke filling the temple and the, the vision that Isaiah saw, it's transcendence, majestic otherness. And the scriptures use various ways of saying this to us, and I've given some examples to you there. My favorite, when Moses says, who, who is like the Lord? Who is like him? He's beyond, different, utterly distinct. Hosea 11, in a statement of God's gracious, compassionate, covenant love that leads him to not ultimately forsake his people, he says in verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. And we say, why? For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. There his gracious, merciful love is transcendent. He's distinct. He, he loves as he loves in perfection, not, not as man. He's, he's different. Paul gets at this in Acts 17 as well, 1 Timothy 6, that God dwells in unapproachable light. There are many ways scripture uses to reflect this, but we talk about God being exalted and above. 
Again, not merely in his rule and his lordship, but certainly in all those things, but also in his character. But then we, we, talk, we see Scripture portrays him as imminent, as near, as close. Even Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was, was there with creation, right? Hovering over the depth of the waters. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, in extremely tender language, God says, the Lord your God, verse 30, who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son. Imminence, nearness, the transcendent, totally other God is near. He carried his people like a man carries his son. He's near, he's with them. He acts in creation and on behalf of his creatures. He gives care. Similarly, Deuteronomy 7, where it talks about him setting his love. The transcendent God chose to set his love on a particular people. He chose to be imminent. He chose to be involved, to be present. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his unique son, right, so that those who believe would have eternal life. He acted freely and chose to act and be engaged with his creation. He's imminent. So he's beyond. He's perfectly self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He needs nothing from us. And yet he chose to act and to be involved and to create us for his own glory. So imminence refers to his involvement, his activity, his nearness, his presence. And we won't, always must remember that God, as we study God's attributes, attributes that we're going to call greatness and goodness, and Adam will say more about this next week. As we study God's greatness, which we might put under this category of transcendence, even incomprehensibility, we must remember that, that he's imminent, the wonder that he's near, that he cares for us, what is man, that he would be mindful of us. And then when we study attributes of goodness, we must remember that he is transcendent. Then when we study his love and his grace and his compassion and his mercy, that those things are statements about the being of transcendent God, who's majestically other and distinct from us. We may give priority to neither at the expense of the other. He is transcendently imminent and imminently transcendent. He's far and near, and near and far always as who he is in relation to us, and it's amazing. And you see this in the same context, places like Isaiah 57, 15, and Deuteronomy 10, and Psalm 113. I encourage you to look at those on your own. So as we marvel at God's greatness, we must remember that he's freely chosen to love even us, to have relationship with us, to act to save us, to prepare an eternity for us with him. And that should cause us to marvel. And then as we wonder and marvel at God's goodness toward his creation and his acts of nearness, we must remember that he is awesome in majesty, that there is none like him, that he's a consuming fire, that he is God and not a man, as as the scriptures we read earlier say and proclaim. And we always want those to be the framework for the way we think about the attributes, to keep us balanced, biblically balanced. He is incomprehensible yet knowable. He is transcendent yet imminent. 
and those things will provide the framework for how we understand the ways that God has revealed his being to us in his word. I've left you in your handout with a quote from Bruce Ware in his book, God's Greater Glory. This is a quote I've referenced before, and I'll close by reading this for you and we'll be dismissed. Whether we behold and believe and adore and trust and honor and love the true and living God, or whether we belittle and distort and minimize and diminish God as we conceive him in order to magnify and enlarge and overextend the significance of us, this at bottom is what is at stake when we consider the doctrines of God. In a culture saturated with esteem of the self, and marred by the decline of deity, we stand in need of beholding God for who he is. We need desperately to be humbled and amazed at the infinite splendor of his unrivaled greatness and the unspeakable wealth of his lavish goodness. We must marvel at his blinding glory and fall astonished at his benevolent grace. If we are to escape the cult of self and find instead the true meaning of life and the path of true satisfaction, if we are to give God the glory rightly and exclusively owed to him, that is, if we are to know what truly promotes both our good and his glory, we must behold God for who he is. And that's what we endeavor to do in our study over the next several weeks. We consider our glorious God and his attributes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that teaches us who you are, and what you want us to know about you. Bless our fellowship now as we go from here and as we prepare for our next worship service. It's in our Savior's name that I pray, amen.